the life and legacy of David Ralston. His leadership has gotten Georgia through tough spots. The way in which he was respectful of everybody has just been so important, and he will be missed. That was State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, one of many lawmakers, honoring the legacy of House Speaker David Ralston. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We are so sorry we have to lead with this tragic news of, of House Speaker David Ralston's death. Um, two weeks ago, we had a special episode talking about his decision to give up the gavel and step down. But at the time, we did not know how grave his illness was. Uh, you know, we, we were all expecting, as was his family and his aides, that he'd be back in the legislature, just not in a leadership post. Uh, so we'll be talking about that today. And Patricia, we've got so much else to talk about on the Senate race, which is heating up and a monumental court ruling that any other week would lead the show. But it just gives you a glimpse at how busy Georgia politics continues to be. Yes. I mean, it's obviously just a hugely, hugely busy time in politics because of the runoff. But I think it's so important to stop and think about the role that David Ralston played in the state capitol. He was often the most powerful person in the state, although many people didn't know who he was, to be honest with you. But the members of the state house and state senate, and obviously the governor's office certainly knew who he was. There was just almost universal respect and affection for him in a way that I think would really surprise people from outside of the capitol. And I say surprise people just because it was Republicans and Democrats who felt Mm -hmm. that way about Ralston. A lot of that had to do with the way he treated them as individuals and as a party. And um, I think it's an example that um, when I'm speaking to members of the State House today and yesterday, they are very hopeful that that example can continue. They want to use that example, but without somebody like Ralston there in the chamber in the speaker's office leading through that example, you know, they're concerned that that may be a a piece of the past. We'll also answer your questions from our listener mailbag slash hotline, and we'll talk who's up and who's down in this week in Georgia politics. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, as we mentioned just now, uh, it took a lot of folks by surprise, including, I think, me and you. We both got tips earlier this week that the speaker's health was taking a downturn, but it really, um, I guess it accelerated on Friday. 
And, you know, it struck me about the aftermath. And I was in the airport in Syracuse coming back from a journalism event that, you know, a colleague, our colleague David Wickert were both involved in up in New York State. And it struck me just after the news broke was how many tributes we were getting from both parties, from Democrats and Republicans in equal numbers. You know, Democrats were also singing Speaker Ralston's praises uh, and sometimes for other reasons, right? We always call him a moderating force on the state legislature. He was sort of that, that what did you call him? The teacup? <laughs> the, uh, oh, the I called him the lid on a pot of boiling water. <laughs> the lid on the pot <laughs> also, of the boiling water. One time I called him the keel of the Capitol, you know, that piece of a sailboat that oh, keeps yeah. it upright instead of from flipping over I in like the heavy that. winds. The keel so. of the Capitol. I love mm-hmm. that. Well, we call him that, but he was no moderate. He was very conservative. Yeah. He, he had a very conservative track record, but at the same time, when he needed to and when he thought it was best for Georgia, he found common ground with Democrats and led his chamber to pass legislation that legalized medical marijuana programs, that rolled back antiquated criminal justice crackdowns, that most recently expanded mental health programs in Georgia to help countless millions of Georgians or hundreds of thousands of Georgians struggling with mental health illness. So he had this track record of, of course, being a conservative legislature on issues like immigration and on economy and on abortion and on guns and other key issues for conservatives, but also one where he found so much room for consensus with Democrats. Yeah. And as you said, very conservative. And um, like you, I was just incredibly struck by the outpouring of emotion from Democrats, especially when you think about the bills that have passed out of Ralston's house are some of the most conservative anywhere in the country. And you have to put permitless carry in that pile. Obviously, the six-week abortion ban, SB 202, the election overhaul here in the state of Georgia after the 2020 elections. All of those are bills that he modified slightly, but they're also all bills that he brought to the floor. No piece of legislation comes to the floor without the speaker saying that they will. But he knew that those bills had a majority vote in his chamber, had the overwhelming support of voters in his own members' districts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was always that balancing act that he needed to have. But at the end of the day, he was also a real pragmatist. And whether that meant protecting his members or also moving pragmatic pieces of legislation that would just have a very broad effect in the state. And I think the Mental Health Parity Act is a great example of that. We talked to members, it did not matter what party, Democrat, Republican, somebody just, uh, you know, watching from the galleries, everybody knows somebody who has struggled with addiction or mental health illness. And he knew that. And so he brought this bill forward because he saw this real 1970s infrastructure in a very 2022 crisis and felt like it was a chance for the Capitol to do something about that. And he did do that. Yeah, Patricia, you know, I would doubt many people, even my own neighborhood could pick David Ralston out, right? He, he was a high profile figure, of course, but he wasn't as universally recognized as Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp or Raphael Warnock or John Ossoff or Herschel Walker. But at the same time, he's, he's arguably, if not the most powerful person in Georgia, one of the top two or three and nothing passed in the legislature, major or minor, without at least his tacit approval, if not his imprint on it. And that includes key portions of the state's $30 billion plus budget. So he had a direct effect on our lives in big ways and small ways. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I think part of his power and his effectiveness came from the fact that he wasn't very well known outside of the state capital. So he could move within his own community in Blue Ridge. He could go around the state. He could go to baseball games. He could just see what was happening in the state. The only people who knew who he was were the ones who needed to know who he was. But otherwise, he could just kind of blend into the woodwork and be in very close touch with normal Georgians leading normal lives with normal, very real challenges. And I think that helped keep him very pragmatic as well. He was never somebody who was treated as a celebrity and um, sort of walled off from the general public. He was the general public. You know, he kept a picture in his office of his family's kind of homestead in Gilmer County. I mean, that is rural North Georgia mountains. Um, But he kept it in his office to just remind him of where he was from, the type of people he was always trying to serve. And we would always visit him in his beloved Blue Ridge, Georgia, up in the mountains, um, very fiercely independent. He was very proud of his community's fierce <laughs> determination and fight for basically its own sovereignty. Um, yes. He was very kind of Union County, which got its name in part, at least at least by legend, of not wanting to join the Confederacy of walling itself off yeah. from the uh, the secession movement and fighting to become its own independent entity. And, you know, mountain folks in Georgia, he was proud to be uh, the descendant of the proud mountain Georgians. And they had that reputation. You know, he had a maverick streak. He wasn't that necessarily that statewide figure who everyone recognized. But every so often, you know, I was looking back in our archives, there'd be stories that you wrote or that I wrote about him, you know, floating his name out there for U.S. Senate or him floating his name out there for federal office in some form or fashion. But I think both of us kind of knew that was never going to happen. He was enjoying uh, a very <laughs> tough job as being the House Speaker, but one that he he was able to navigate. And I think he was enjoying that job way too much than to run for some some higher up or actually in his view, it would probably be lower office. <laughs> no, I don't think he ever really was going to run for the Senate, but he would have been a natural candidate to do that had he not been so ingrained and so kind of woven into the fabric of the state capitol. Obviously, he's the state house speaker. He wielded a ton of influence. He was able to raise immense amounts of money. He was super plugged in with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, mm-hmm. So he had all the building blocks that you would need to do a statewide run. He actually did run statewide one time for attorney general and lost. But we really felt like, um, I think you and I, when we covered him, he really had found his place as the leader of the state house. And talking about him running for Senate was kind of a fun parlor game, but Mm. it didn't seem like anything that he really had his heart in. But he could have done it if he wanted to. Um, He had the power and he had the tools and the access to do it. But he really seemed to feel like his best work and most important work was doing exactly what he was doing. Well, the tributes are pouring in almost immediately. We highlighted a handful of them in the Thursday morning jolt. You should go back and read that if you haven't already. They're very powerful. And one that really got me was from Bob Trammell, who is for a few years the House Minority Leader, who's the top House Democrat, basically Ralston's counterpart and top adversary really under the Gold Dome. I mean, Trammell's job was to promote the Democratic agenda and Ralston's was to promote the Republican agenda, but they developed a a really close personal relationship. And Trammell said he'll never forget Ralston calling him as he stood beside his dying father in hospice just to check in. And after Representative Trammell's appendix burst just before the 2020 legislative session, Ralston called him in the hospital. And a few days later, Trammell texted him saying, thank you. Thank you for the call. This is what David Ralston texted back to the Democrat. Quote, don't thank me, you're my friend, and that doesn't depend on anything. I'll count on seeing you in the cockpit on January 27th. 
follow the instructions and let me know if I can do anything. So that's David Ralston uh, in a nutshell. And of course, we are sending our best wishes to David Ralston's friends, family, and many, many colleagues at the state capitol who are really grappling with his loss. And we will continue to talk about him and his legacy going forward. Well, Patricia, there's still a Senate campaign runoff going on. And uh, we're seeing two really interesting and divergent strategies in a sense. Usually in runoff campaigns, you see base turnout being the name of the game, right? We saw that in 2021 when John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock were trying to bring out core Democratic voters, David Perdue, Kelly Leffler trying to get out core conservative voters. Well, with so many split ticket voters, something that a dynamic we just don't see in Georgia, with so many of them, 200,000 or so more voters backed Governor Kemp than Herschel Walker. So with those 200,000 or so votes in play right now, both the campaigns are taking new steps to reach those voters. Let's start with Senator Warnock who released an ad this week targeting them directly. I'm Raphael Warnock and I approve this message. I voted Republican most of my life and I was proud to support Brian Kemp. The more I heard about Herschel Walker, I became concerned about his uh, honesty, his hypocrisy, but also just his ability to lead. I just can't get past Herschel Walker's lack of character. The fact that he lies so freely is very concerning to me. At the end of the day, I have to vote for someone that I can trust and that has integrity, and I don't believe that is Herschel Walker. So that ad is airing statewide in Georgia, and that woman is a Republican, as she said, proud Republican voter who lives near the Tennessee state line. And if you look at the map, Patricia, of where Herschel Walker struggled the most with core conservative voters, it was Metro Atlanta, which is somewhat to be expected. That's where a lot of more moderate voters are. But there was also that there's a ribbon along the state line with Tennessee where he really struggled. And that is the exact voter that Raphael Warnock needs to come back out for him. And let's go inside the mind of a Republican voter right now. You went out to the polls. You voted for Brian Kemp. You probably voted for the rest of the Republicans down the ticket. Are you going to go back to the polls on December 6th just to vote for a Democratic senator for Raphael Warnock to return to the Senate? That is a heavy lift if you think about it. Now, there may be some Republicans motivated to go out and vote against Herschel Walker, but I think those crossover voters who were crucial to Raphael Warnock getting up over Herschel Walker in the final count, getting so close to 50%, those crossover voters were a big piece of that. And so it's very easy to see why the Warnock campaign is doing this ad and making this calculation. He's got to get them back out to the polls. Simultaneously, we do not hear a similar message right now from Herschel Walker, at least in his stump speech. It sounds like he is really going for the base Republicans. He's sort of leaving that middle of the road space over to Raphael Warnock. So if Warnock can get those Republicans to come back out to the polls for him, that is his recipe for victory. But to me, that is a really hard thing to do. It's not impossible, but it's hard to do. And I can see why they're going to put a lot of money behind it. It's hard to do because those voters who you can, I guess, suggest or assume maybe that a lot of those voters who ended up voting for him weren't there specifically to vote for him. They were there, as you mentioned, to vote yeah. for, <laughs> for the other candidates on the race. And so getting them out after a Thanksgiving holiday in early December is going to be tough, but it's equally going to be tough for Herschel Walker. Because now, as we mentioned in previous shows, and as our listeners know very well, Democratic control is no longer, uh, control of the Senate, I should say, is no longer on the line. 
Uh, Democrats clinched that over the weekend. And so he's got his own challenges. That that takes away a core argument from Herschel Walker, who used to say a vote for me is a vote for a Republican-controlled Senate. He can no longer make that case. His allies can no longer make that case. But Patricia, he has someone important in his camp who's going to help him with those split-ticket voters as well, and that is Governor Kemp. Because now Governor Kemp is hitting the campaign trail with Herschel Walker to argue that those Kemp Warnock voters should turn into Kemp Walker voters. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that for Brian Kemp and Herschel Walker, that is the most important voice that Walker can have come out for him. He's had a whole string of surrogates come out. Other senators who themselves, by the way, would have new committee chairmanships if they had gotten control of the Senate, would have had potential runs at Senate Majority Leader if they had gotten control of the Senate. You could see sort of the self-serving motivations behind every single one of those visits to Georgia from those senators. But Brian Kemp can go out there and say, I believe Herschel Walker will be a great partner for me in Washington. I do wonder what exactly his endorsement will sound like. Will it say, Herschel Walker's a good man, don't believe what you've heard about him? Or will it simply say, we need to have more Republicans in Washington? Listen to the language that he uses on the stump on Saturday. That'll be something I'm definitely going to be paying attention to. But I think uh, you can feel, though, it has drained the intensity out of this race, the fact that control of the Senate is not on the table anymore. I went out to see Herschel Walker in Jefferson, Georgia. I'm still a really large crowd, but not the same intensity, not the same feeling of it's all down to this one race. And so Mm -hmm. for as much as Raphael Warnock has a new challenge in front of him, Herschel Walker absolutely has a new challenge in front of him. That uh, was definitely the main motivating factor for a number of Republican voters I talked to to get that U.S. Senate flipped from Democrat to Republican. And that's just not there anymore. Were there, I'm just curious, because we haven't unpacked this yet. I haven't talked to you about this yet. Was there as much media attention as well? Because I know a lot of our national and international media friends have gone home. Some of them plan to come back in the last week after Thanksgiving. Uh, But were there as many cameras and and national reporters there? Because my my first post-runoff event with Herschel Walker was this past Sunday, or at least my most recent one. That was after Senate control was clinched too. And there was just a handful of reporters. There's a ton of people. There were 750 people over there or so there, but there's only a handful of reporters there. Oh, I was the only reporter. There were three cameras there, and I'm pretty sure those were trackers. <laughs> I don't. I didn't so see that anybody says a reporter. Lot. He. Yes, absolutely. It yeah. shows that people are kind of like, eh. I don't know. Been there, done that. I mean, that's absolutely how the media feels. Is that how voters are going to feel? Listen, neither campaign can afford that. Neither campaign can yeah. have people feel like they've already voted in this race. So what's the point? Which is why you were seeing them just plow millions of dollars into door knockers. I saw Garrison Douglas at that event. He's from the RNC. Mm-hmm. The RNC is bringing 400 staffers down. There'll be 400 down here by Friday. Uh, Paid staffers going canvassing, door knocking all across Georgia. They're putting all the resources they can into getting people to turn out for this race. And Warnock's campaign has hired 300 of their own. So they're scaling up dramatically. And unlike the last campaign, they don't have nine weeks to do it. They have four and we're already halfway through. So well, and time, one of those is Thanksgiving week. So that's, yeah. that's not easy either. And I won't be surprised to see either of the campaigns having Thanksgiving Day events or Black Friday Day events. And one more thing we want to talk about before break is Trump, as we expected, announced his campaign on Tuesday. It doesn't seem like the earth shattering dynamic shift that Senate control has been, you know, that will probably shape the race a lot more than Trump's entrance. But both sides see potential peril and potential payoff from Trump's 
entrance into the race for for Democrats. They want to you know in, energize their base. And nothing does that quite as well as Donald Trump. But Republicans, you know, at a time where there was there was lower than expected GOP turnout in the November midterm, there could be a, a, a sort of a, a Trump bounce maybe for Herschel Walker as well. But we know Democrats are a little bit more optimistic about a positive effect for them than Republicans are. And here's one reason why Senator Warnock already has an initial ad that features Donald Trump's endorsement on Tuesday of Herschel Walker. Let's listen. We must all work very hard for a gentleman and a great person named Herschel Walker, a fabulous human being who loves our country and will be a great United States Senator. Herschel Walker, get out and vote for Herschel, and he deserves it. He was an incredible athlete. He'll be an even better senator. Get out and vote for Herschel Walker. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. Patricia, at the very end of the ad, white lettering shows up that says, stop Herschel Walker, stop Donald Trump. So that, in a nutshell, tells you all that you need to know about Democrats and how they see Donald Trump entering this race as helping them. Absolutely. I mean, the only Donald Trump bounce that we've seen in this state in the last two years is for Democrats. And Democrats would love to recreate that magic for themselves. So the fact that he got into this race, got into it before the runoff here in Georgia. Republicans didn't want that, but Democrats definitely did. I can tell you, though, when I was with Herschel Walker in uh, in Jefferson, it was the same night that Donald Trump announced, and he never mentioned Donald Trump once. I talked to a number of voters after that event and said, you know, what do you think about Donald Trump getting into this event? I mean, getting into this race again. And they're like, eh, you know what? I feel like I'm ready for somebody new. These had been Trump voters, but they were ready to turn the page as well. They felt exhausted. They don't need Donald Trump to tell them to vote for Herschel Walker. They're going to do that anyway. And I think Republicans understand that. And they would love to have Trump stay out of this race, out of this state, and let Herschel Walker run this on his own as best he can. Let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. Not only are we your co-host for Politically Georgia, we're also two of the authors of the Morning Joel newsletter, which we think sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, and your first month of limited digital access is just 99 cents. 
That is subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Okay, Patricia, this third story could have been the lead story, it feels like, any other any other week because it's enormous news. A Fulton County Superior Court judge, Robert McBurney, struck down Georgia's anti-abortion law on the grounds that when lawmakers adopted it in 2019, they adopted it under the understanding that it was already unconstitutional because back then it was before Roe v. Wade was struck down. And so he basically said lawmakers are free to revive it. But right now, through that sort of angle, it is unconstitutional. So already abortion clinics are back up and running. We've already reported, our colleagues have reported that some of the clinics have been flooded with calls. There's a lot of confusion as well. And that lawmakers are taking a wait and see approach because this ruling will be appealed. And there's no telling what an appellate court or the Georgia Supreme Court will do when it lands in their venue. So right now, we're not sure how long that will take. We're not sure if that will be a year or a few months. We just don't know. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so, Patricia, this is another sea change here in Georgia. Major, major sea change. And um, as you said, we don't know exactly what happens to this legislation in the future, but it just reopens this debate. It had been one that Republicans had felt they had settled in 2019. Then it was held up in the courts, very, very dormant for a bit. And then once the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, it just exploded back into the headlines. We saw Republicans when they were out on the trail in the general elections didn't really talk about this a whole lot, didn't seem eager to revisit the debate, uh, didn't seem eager even to discuss this in a general election setting. Now also, they do not have the same number of members in the State House and Senate, so it's unclear if they could even pass that bill again if they wanted to. So it is uh, just creates an enormous amount of uncertainty. It also, as our reporting showed, has sort of put these abortion clinics back in business. They said they're flooded with calls. I think that indicates, and I mentioned this to a Republican earlier today, it indicates that the bill that passed didn't keep women from seeking abortions in Georgia. It just kept them from seeking abortions within the state lines of Georgia. They were continuing to seek abortions, uh, but in other states like North Carolina and Florida. And if this ruling is upheld, and there's a big question mark because we just don't know what, what what will happen in the appellate courts. But if this ruling is upheld, it's a major decision for Governor Kemp and for two new legs of that stool, uh, with the, a new Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones, and a new House Speaker, John Burns. Talk about a major decision to make, you know, right when you start your new gig. Okay, here, here's the most fraught debate in the country right now. And again, as you mentioned, one that narrowly passed, barely passed the Georgia House, only passed with one vote to spare in the Georgia House. And a number of Republicans walked out on that vote. A number voted against it. There was one Democrat who crossed over and voted for it. So this is this is a very perilous debate. And it remains to be seen whether or not the Republican leaders in the General Assembly and the governor will want to put their capital after a really um, you know, after a solid election victory that where he didn't talk much about abortion or his anti-abortion support, um, whether he wants to put his capital behind a new effort to limit abortion in Georgia. So we will be very closely watching that. I get some questions. Is this affecting the debate on the campaign trail? Not so much. I mean, look, you know, it's a federal race. This would have affected the gubernatorial race. And McBurney, the judge, you know, he, he paused those deliberations until after the election. And who knows if he would have waited if there was a runoff until after the runoff. But uh, we do know he's, he, he, you know, he has, he has an eye on what's happening. He, he saw the, the calendar as well. Um, 
But do we think it's going, is it really even affecting the dialogue in the federal race? Not so much that I've seen at least, you know, there's the Herschel Walker has endorsed, not only has endorsed the state anti-abortion law, uh, but he's also endorsed Lindsey Graham's proposal for federal restrictions on abortion. Uh, but there hasn't been much back and forth about this particular ruling. I think also we're going to have to see exactly what this does um, in the state house for incoming speaker John Burns. This would be mm-hmm. a very early test of his speakership. He'll have to decide whether he wants to take on a huge sort of explosive social issue like this. Also for uh, Governor Brian Kemp, he has said very explicitly he wants to focus on the economy, wants to focus on passing property tax relief, passing other ways to make uh, inflation more palatable, more bearable for Georgians. And then for incoming Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, he also has to decide how he wants to start his term as leader of the state Senate over there. So we have a whole new set of leaders and a whole new set of issues for them. And it's really incumbent upon them to pick and choose what they want to do to both keep their caucus strong, but then also to keep their own leadership strong. And the interesting thing about this, Patricia, is that originally Republicans, including Governor Kemp, talked about what they called a trigger law, which was if Roe v. Wade was overturned, then XYZ would go into effect. And they moved away from that in favor of tougher restrictions. But had they actually sided with the trigger law, then this case, this sort of argument would be moot because a trigger law was written to avoid this sort of legal entanglement. So we will keep watching to see what happens and we'll, of course, keep you up to date on that court ruling as it moves, uh, that court case, I should say, as it moves through the legal system. A reminder that you can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. I know you've got lots of questions. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. It's time for the listener mailbag. You know, we need like Kermit the Frog. Yeah. <laughs> Arms flailing and running off the stage. That's usually me. I'm kind of more of a cookie monster guy, you know. Oh, man, you're really hungry. Uh, but um, we got a phone call this week from Diane in Marietta. She has a question about a way to handle this abortion issue. I want to know why nobody is asking the question of the politicians. Would you sponsor a referendum to let the people of the state of Georgia vote on whether they want abortion to be legal or not? And the other question is, I've never seen a local initiative or anything on how voters could get it on the ballot. So is there a way that somebody like me could help get a referendum on the next election? to decide whether abortion was legal or not. Diane, and I'm in Marietta, Georgia, and I really love politics. Thank you. Diane, I think that's a really great question. It's a fascinating inquiry because there are other states that have put this on their own ballots as a ballot initiative. Kansas is the best example of that. And so we saw a very unexpected result that in a state that Donald Trump won by almost 20 points in the last elections, that state rejected an effort to ban all abortions in their state um, by a huge margin. And so while you have what is an obviously conservative electorate, 
secret. You have a result that protected abortion rights in Kansas. And so the question naturally in other states is, well, can we maybe do that too? The answer is yes, you can do a ballot initiative on an individual measure, but it takes quite a bit of legislative maneuvering. It also takes that issue out of the hands and away from the benefit of the lawmakers. So if you have a lawmaker who wants to have an issue instead of a solution, to be honest with you, sometimes putting that on a ballot takes that out of their hands and it puts it in the hands of the voters. And that's not always in the best interest of lawmakers, although it may be in the best interest of voters. So there are a whole lot of reasons that it doesn't end up on a ballot. The the two things that tend to end up on a statewide ballot are, you know, kind of very narrow questions about a tax break or um, something like that. A large policy piece like this, you tend to see lawmakers want to have the, they want to have the final control over it instead of individual voters. Yeah, and Dan, I can tell you if you want to put this as a, in, into the state constitution, if you want to make this a constitutional amendment, it is a high bar. It needs passage of two-thirds of the General Assembly, which is not going to happen with something like this. And then it's a ballot question. And so that is a very high bar to get on to, to get embedded in the state constitution. But I can also tell you, Democrats would absolutely love that. (laughs) The other day, uh, newly elected state Senator Josh McLaurin, who was a member of the Georgia House for a few years, he tweeted exactly that. He said, please put this on the ballot in November 2024. And there's a great reason why. It would hyperdrive turnout. It would turbocharge turnout in Georgia at exactly the time when Democrats want it the most in the middle of a presidential election. And uh, Democrats are very confident it would help them because our polls show that. Our polls show a broad majority of Georgia voters oppose the current state anti-abortion law and also oppose the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And so those put together signal, you know, it, it would juice up turnout and it could indeed help Democrats in the ballot. But I, do I do we think it's happening? No. It's no. it's it, it took it took a an epic fight just to get the basically a bare minimum of a bare majority of Georgia voters to uh, Georgia lawmakers I should say to adopt these anti-abortion measures and so it will not pass that two-thirds threshold unless there's a tidal wave <laughs> somehow in the in the Georgia General Assembly. Okay, Patricia, it is time for who's up and who's down. Who's your who's down for the week? So my who's down for the week has got to be Donald Trump uh, after his announcement that landed with a bit of a thud. There were all kinds of videos showing people who had gone to Mar-a-Lago for the announcement trying to get out early before he finished talking, but the doors were locked. Also, the New York Post headline the next day was tiny at the bottom of the front page, and it just said, Florida retiree makes an announcement. <laughs> that is not the kind of coverage he wants for his hometown paper. It def- I, he's my who's down too, Patricia. I know we didn't coordinate this, but it definitely feels like a very different environment. He's not. It wasn't even big news in Georgia, it felt like. You know, we wrote a story about how it affects the Senate race because that's kind of, you know, because it, it does affect the Senate race as we earlier talked about. But it wasn't huge news here. You didn't see a flood of politicians lining up behind him or lining up against him. You're right. A thud is a great way to put it. it you know, it's he's look, no one's counting him out. Who knows what the next couple of years bring? But it wasn't this cataclysmic, uh, seismic development in Georgia politics whatsoever. I just, I, I agree. I did just was kind of, uh, it was, it was there. And I was watching it in Syracuse with uh, two of our, our colleagues, I guess you call them from Washington post who cover Donald Trump. And 
you know, they, they noted, um, they watched him a lot more, more closely than I do. They noted, look, he's, he's avoiding the stop the steal rhetoric. He's avoiding some of the most cutting rhetoric, but we were watching it at a bar in a hotel through Fox news. We couldn't even watch the host speech because Fox news even cut away after Donald Trump went on for about 30 minutes. And he, and so they were just showing split screen for the next 30 or so minutes as he continued to talk. And that again said a lot that even Fox news wasn't carrying the whole speech. Yes, I think probably the first constituent he should have reached out to was Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. But because he didn't do that, you know, he's going to have to suffer the consequences. You got it. And I don't think they'll be cutting away from Ron DeSantis's full speech when he, when he announces from the Florida governor. <laughs> That's exactly right. We will see. Okay, Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? So my who's up for the week is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, she announced this week that she is stepping down as the leader of the Democratic Party in the state house. Uh, won't be the speaker, won't be the Democratic leader anymore. Stepping down after years and years of leadership. And I covered her as a reporter on Capitol Hill for many, many years. And she was the most ferocious political beast I have ever <laughs> seen. Um, it was just fascinating to watch her work, to see her push bills through when nobody thought they could. There was a, a moment when um, the Affordable Care Act looked like it was dead. The Senate wasn't doing much with it. Even Barack Obama was like, well, we're going to try our best. And Pelosi said, um, look, if I can't get through a window, I'm going through a door. If I can't get through a door, I'm going through a wall. If I can't get through a wall, I'm digging a tunnel. If I can't do a tunnel, I'm going to have a ladder to get over the wall. You know, she was like, this is happening. Nobody believed her. And she did it. And she also had this saying, she said that nobody gives you power, you have to take it from them. And so to see hmm. this from this mother of five, grandma of about 15, uh, talking about this uh, very cold and calculated but effective use of power was amazing to watch, and it um, really made her the most powerful woman in history. Uh, yeah, very, very timely uh, who's up as well for Nancy Pelosi, who had a major announcement this week. Uh, my who's up is going to be college students, <laughs> because in the last five days, I've spoken to students at Morehouse, at University of West Georgia, at Syracuse University, and at University of Georgia. And... There's one thing that connects all those students, and those are unbelievable questions and and sincere and deep interest in Georgia politics. And it's really been inspiring to go out and talk to these groups of students and just be bombarded with questions and really, really good questions. And frankly, a lot better questions than I, than I would ask about Georgia politics and what's next in the Senate runoffs and what's next in 2023 and about David Ralston's legacy. And you name it, they were asking it. So Patricia, there is much reason for optimism with the next group of, of young journalists and young political scientists and operatives and aides and candidates. And so I was, it was, it was really great to, to join them out there in college campuses all over Georgia and beyond. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. 
It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.